We're, we're in a series, our first series called Gospel-Centered, and we're saying as we launch out as a, as a body of believers, what do we want to be about? We want to wrap our lives around the gospel and say the gospel is going to shape us. It's going to determine how we do life and ministry. And so we said in the first week uh, from Ephesians chapter 2, the gospel saves. It's good news. And, and, and from there, uh, we, we're going to see that the gospel shapes. It should shape our marriages. It should shape the way we relate to each other. It should shape the way we live in the world and we work. And then the gospel uh, sends us as well. It, it doesn't just come to us, but it comes through us into the world. And so we've been talking about all of that. But if you were here in January when we just had one off service, we said uh, the vision of Redemption Parker is we exist to glorify God and for the, if we exist for the glory of God and the joy of all people. For the glory of God and the joy of all people. And, and all people, what I love about that means all people, which also includes us. Like, as we pursue God and glorify God, we get joy. So, so those are not two separate pursuits that we would glorify God and also uh, have people have joy. That they are one pursuit, or as some uh, reformers about 300 years ago said in the Westminster Catechism, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And so uh, if you were with us, you, we're, we're, that's what we're pursuing. Now, one of the things we want to push back against is uh, a, a dumbing down of the gospel, uh, an oversimplification, a misapplying, because I think what it does, is it robs God of, of glory and robs us of joy when we oversimplify the gospel. There, there's an illustration that maybe I could help you with. Um, it comes from a deeply theological movie in the year I was born. It came out. I'm sure none of you have seen it. Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Okay, so uh, maybe you're familiar with this, but in this movie, there, there is this journey. There, uh, King Arthur and his knights are searching out the Holy Grail, and uh, they come to this chasm at one point, and it's a long bridge over, and there's a gatekeeper at the front of the chasm, and the gatekeeper says, uh, if you're going to get across, you have to answer three questions, but the stakes are kind of high because if you get any of the questions wrong, you get cast into the abyss. And so, okay, we'll do that. And uh, the first night comes up, and he's nervous. He doesn't know what to expect. And, and the gatekeeper says, state your name, and he does it. He says, state your quest, and he does it. And he says, what's your favorite color? He's like, red. He's like, well, go right on ahead. And he goes over, and he's like, this is pretty easy, right? And so the next night comes, and now he's feeling confident, like, hey, this is no problem at all. State your name, he does. State your quest, he does. And he says, what's the capital of Assyria? And he's like, well, I don't know. And ah, he's cast into the abyss. Well, the third night comes up, and, and now his knees are knocking, his teeth are chattering. He doesn't know what to expect, and he says, state your name, and he stutters it out, and he says, state your quest, and he mumbles that, and then he says, what's your favorite color? But he's so nervous, he says, red, no, no, blue, blue, and ah, he's cast off into the abyss. Finally, King Arthur comes up, and the gatekeeper says, state your name, and he says, I'm Arthur, king of the Britons. State your quest. I search the Holy Grail. And then he asks him this question. It's kind of a running gag throughout the movie. It's, what's the airspeed velocity of a coconut-laden swallow? And Arthur's response is also kind of a running gag. He says, well, that depends. Are we talking about an African swallow or a European swallow? 
And the gatekeeper says, well, I don't know that. And the gatekeeper's cast into the abyss. And so Arthur goes off. And you're like, how in the world does that reply, uh, apply to the gospel? And now here's, the, here's why I think I, I make this very long leap. Um, it's this. For, for millions of Christians, particularly in the West, and, and thousands of churches today, we've, we've boiled down the gospel. We've, we've made it. What are the minimum entrance requirements to get into heaven when I die? What do I have to do? What's the, what's the magic golden ticket? What's the Willy Wonka golden ticket for, to get into heaven when I die? The, the, you know, the chocolate factory kind of thing. What, what's the least I do? Is it the prayer that I prayed when I was six years old? Or, or is it this? What do I have to do to check the box and say, yeah, I've got the, I've got the magic thing that when I get to the gate, they got to let me in. And, and if that's all the gospel is, no wonder it's just like, check that box, move on. Now let's talk about how, how we can have better lives together. But what we're saying is that's a, a misunderstanding. It's a very shallow, two-inch deep understanding of the gospel. Yes, uh, you uh, are rescued and redeemed by that, but it goes so much deeper. There's two words that if you were here a few weeks ago in week one, that, that typically come out of Ephesians 2. That the word would be uh, justification, and if we looked elsewhere, adoption. And I'm going to give you some theological terms today, not because uh, I want to show you that I, I learned some things in seminary, but because they're actually helpful for us. And so the term justification and adoption happen instantaneously, instantaneously when God brings us from life, from, from death to life, when he uh, adopts us. One's a legal term, justification. So in the instant that you, by grace through faith, trust in Christ, you receive what's called justification. You receive the, the just life of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he became sin who knew no sin, that you and I might become the righteousness of God. So we have what we would call positional holiness, positional sanctification. So when God sees you, if you're a Christian here this morning, he sees a holy, righteous person. That's why the Bible calls us saints, that, that we have on us covered in the righteousness of Christ. And that happens. It's a legal term, but it's not the only term that Paul will use when, when, when that conversion happens. The other one is adoption, that one's legal, but the other one's relational. That, that we enter into the family of God. We receive an inheritance as family members and co-heirs with Christ. We are adopted. And so Jesus will say, uh, you can call God Abba, Father. Now that doesn't mean Daddy, Father, because that's a high honor culture. That, that, there wasn't a term for that. It was a high honor culture. We're a low honor culture. It just means you can now come to God and say, Father God. <clears throat> Now, for many of us, for some of you, and to some degree, all of us, that's a stumbling block because not everyone had amazing fathers. But I, I praise God for this doctrine as a father, as someone who daily falls short in my fathering of my children to know that I'm not perfect, but they have a perfect heavenly father that they get to call Father God. And so um, it's just this amazing thing. And God does these things that only a father does. Like, and he's a, he's a perfect father. He's not like me. So when God says, <clears throat> of course I forgot my water. When God says, uh, well, thank you, sister. This is my sister, by the way. That's Amy. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I'm going to just keep that up here. Right. Um, 
When, when God says, uh, for example, Jesus is talking about when we come to God in prayer and he says, uh, the Father says, come to me, ask me, ask me again, ask me again, just this invitation. You know, when my kids hear me say, ask me again, it's a threat. Like, it's like, ask me again, see what happens. You know, they just walk away. But that's not how our Heavenly Father is, right? Come to me, ask me. And, and Jesus tells a story like, uh, even though you are evil, like wicked fathers, you still give your children good gifts. How much more our Heavenly Father gives us good gifts. And so, we, but that happens instantaneously. We, we saw from Ephesians 2, God does that. God moves. It's, he brings us from death to life. And those, are, those terms, uh, sanctification or justification and adoption are instantaneous. But what we're going to talk about today is sanctification. Now that's different. We have positional holiness. That's why we can come to God uh, and in relationships. That's why we can call him Father. We have positional holiness, but practically we're a very, very long ways from where we are positionally. Does that make sense? Like practically all of us uh, are in this room, if, if you're a follower of Christ, are in process and we're a very long ways from the positional holiness that we have in Christ. And so it's called uh, sanctification. And sanctification, whereas adoption and justification, God does that. Sanctification, God invites us with our will and the Spirit of God to work together to become progressively more and more like Christ. It's a, it's a journey. It's a, it's a picture of process, but um, it doesn't just happen. Like, uh, you don't just kind of become more and more holy. We're going to need what, what uh, D.A. Carson calls grace-driven effort. Grace-driven effort. Maybe some of you saw, I posted this quote on our Facebook page this, this week, but D.A. Carson, he's the president of the Gospel Coalition and professor at Trinity Seminary. He's written like more books than I've ever read. Uh, in his book, For the Love of God, he says this. He says, people do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. We need grace-driven effort is what he says. Now, he doesn't unpack that for us, unfortunately, and that's our, our task here from Colossians chapter 3. But, but the, the, it's still the truth. You, there is no like spiritual neutral territory. Either you're growing and moving towards Christ in, in Christ-likenessness through grace-driven, spirit-empowered effort, or you're going another direction. And that usually in church world, that, that goes in two different ways. It goes either to uh, what we'd call legalism or uh, license. 
reasons. So uh, a legalist just says, well, God wants me to be holy. And so we're going to make a, a bunch of lists and make sure everyone else is following this list. And everyone has different lists, like don't drink, don't smoke, don't go out with girls that do. You know, all these things, uh, that's going to be on our list. And we're going to make sure everyone else is on that list. That's legalism. That's a self-righteous, empty pursuit uh, that has no power, uh, that robs us of joy, does not bring God glory. But on the other hand, there's something called license. Well, we're saved by grace. Therefore, I'm just going to not, it's all God and, and therefore I'll do whatever I want. If I sin, you know what? Grace, you know, and, and just kind of a low view of sin. Like it's not that big a deal. It, it, I'll just do whatever I want. But uh, we, we're called to, to, with the spirit of God, to walk that tightrope, to say, we want to honor you. We want to glorify you. And because we're adopted, God is our father, and he's a good father, and a good father wants the best for his children, right? Like if any of my daughters grow up and they say, you know what, I don't want anything to do with God, I don't want anything to do with you, first of all, that, that's going to be tragic. But secondly, they're still going to be my daughters, and I'm still going to plead for them. I'm going to be like, I want more for you. I want, I want you to experience life as it was meant to be lived. I want you to experience freedom that comes in walking with God and enjoying God and celebrating God. That's what I want for you. And I'm going to uh, plead with them to that end. But in the end, that's, they're still going to be my daughter, whether or not they say, hey, I'm going to follow you. And, and I think this is how we start to understand sanctification. See, God, when he calls you to obedience, is not to rob you of joy, but to give you life as it was meant to be lived. So as God designs marriages, he says, this is the way I've designed it. This is for your joy, for your good, and for my glory. Follow this way. And we say, no, I'm going to do it my own way. You say, That's, it's going to lead to heartache. It's going to lead to brokenness. So God calls us, he's wooing us as a good father, and he's given us his spirit toward that end. So let's look at what Paul's going to lay out, four steps in our battle for sanctification. Colossians chapter 1, four steps. It says this, in, in, uh, chapter 3, I'm sorry. Colossians chapter 3, if you have a Bible, look in your, your index, you can find it. It's in the New Testament, little four-chapter book. Uh, it says this in verse 1 of chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ. Now, I'll just pause there. Don't worry, I'll get through the whole passage. But let me pause for just a moment. So who's he talking to? It's not, a, it's not a trick question. He's talking to Christians, right? So remember in Ephesians 2, we have been raised with Christ, but God, uh, in, because of his great mercy, has made us alive and has raised us with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realm. So Paul now comes to the Colossian church and he says, uh, after unpacking the gospel, reminding them of what's true about God, he says, now this is what it looks like if you're a believer. And verse th- 1, he says, if then you've been raised with Christ. So for believers. Now, this is very important because we don't, we don't start with sanctification and hope that we get adoption and justification. That never works. You can't go that direction. And that's what every world religion tries to do. That's what the Apostle Paul was trying to do before he experienced the living Christ. It's what Martin Luther, before he awoke to grace, he was trying to do. Martin Luther was a young Augustinian monk 
And he, was, uh, he would, he would uh, fast all the time, and he would pray more than any other monks, and he would whip himself for the sins that he would commit. He would go to the priest, and he would go daily and, and confess his sins, and just hours on hours, the priest would have to listen to this. The priest would say to Luther, come back to me when you've really sinned. Stop. But Luther's conscience was just so guilt-ridden. He knew he needed to be righteous and holy, but he knew it wasn't in and of himself. So he was doing all the plan, trying harder, doing more. Uh, the other monks would find him uh, sleeping in the snow at night because he would think, maybe God would love me more if I, if I did this or that. And he just tried and tried and tried and tried. It wasn't until Luther studying and, and was about to preach, teach the book of Romans when he saw, wait, my righteousness comes from God alone, through faith alone. And he had an awakening. He, 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 got, he got adopted. He got regenerated. And then he began the process of sanctification. We can't go the other way. That's, that's dead religion to go the other way. But as rescued and redeemed people, as people in relationship with God, we now say, hey, God, I want to honor you with my life. So would you sanctify me? Would you lead me on this path? So if you've been raised with Christ, he says this, first step, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The first step of sanctification is to think differently. Or as uh, the Apostle Paul would say in the, the book of Romans, chapter 12, verse 2, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed in the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. There has to be a, a, a mind shift. We don't think like we used to think. Uh, oh, good, I have that on. Uh, we, we don't um, just think like the world thing. We don't, we don't we're not consumed with the things that the world is consumed with. We set our minds on things above. It's because it's who we are now. Galatians 2.20 talks about it. 2 Corinthians 5.17 uh, or Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but the life I now live, Christ lives in me. It's where we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realm. So, so Paul's just saying, think about who you are and, and live out of that reality. So if you are, let's just use a sports analogy. If you just made it on the tra trade deadline from the worst team to the best team, like that's a, it's a very bad analogy. But let's just assume someone was, was traded uh, from the worst team to the best team. Now, when you get on your new team, you got to put on a new jersey. You're in a new stadium. You've got new fans. You've got new plays. But in your mind still is, man, I, I was used to running these plays. I was used to, this is the way we did it in that organization. Now I'm here. And so you have to think about like when you're on the court or on the field, like I have different plays. Uh, I have to, uh, yes, those are still in my mind, but I have to use my mind. I'm no longer on that team. I'm on this team. Same thing in Christ. We're, we're no longer of the world. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly realm. So, um, you know, I, I talk with a lot of guys in the military. Oftentimes we would talk about just um, addiction to pornography and other things like that. And, and, I, and they would do a lot of things to try to get rid of it, and a lot of wise things. That I would, but I'd say, it, this won't change until you realize who you are in Christ. 
That's not who defines you anymore. That's not who you are anymore. Until you wake up to the reality that in Christ you are a new creation and you don't have to do that anymore, you're not going to have victory. And so when you wake up to who we are, when we set our minds on things above, it, it begins to change us. That's step one. Step two is what the Puritans would call mortification. That's another theological word for you today, mortification. You may know the word mortify, but look at this. Uh, Verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then he gives them this list, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Now, none of us get get through clean on those lists. Like There is something on that list, probably multiple things, and on all levels on that list where you're like, well, he's talking about me. Right? And, and if, if you say, well, no, I'm, I'm good. I got this. Like the young ruler that came to Jesus, like I've, I, I've obeyed all the law. Then First John is going to call you a liar and says the truth's not in you. If anyone says they are without sin, they don't know God's. And so um, there's this anger. There's this idea of putting to death sin, making war with sin. You think about that in your life? Like you are in a battle like any, any idea that makes sin less uh, severe than it really is does not understand the cross of Christ. Jesus died for our sins. It's a, a serious thing. And he's put to death once and for all our sin. But daily, all of us battle in thought, word, and deed. We, we battle. We, we find ourselves in this list. And so it's this daily battle to put to death, to mortify sin. John Owen writing 400 years ago, wrote a book called The Mortification of Indwelling Indwelling Sin in the Life of Believers. They had great titles back then. And I was reading that this week. It's a great, great book. But he was just saying, look, we've got to be in a battle. We've got to make war with sin. We can't be okay with like, yeah, you know what? I, I lie sometimes. I have some lustful thoughts. I say things to my kids that I shouldn't. But, you know, I'm just in process. No, we, we got to hate our sin. Because that's the path to freedom. That's the path to joy. That's the path to glorifying God. So step two is to uh, make war with sin, to mortification. I, I think of an illustration here in uh, the C.S. Lewis's, my favorite book in the Chronicles of Narnia is The Voyage of the Dawn Trader. Um, they've made a movie out of it, but the movie doesn't quite catch what I think C.S. Lewis was getting at at this one point. Eustace Scrub, this miserable little kid who has uh, found this pile of gold and all this stuff in a dragon's lair, and and in it uh, he thinks, man, I found everything I want in life, and and, and his heart of greed and selfishness just begins to take over, and he falls asleep on top of the gold and the jewelry, and in in so doing he had put on a, a bracelet. And when he wakes up, He's no longer a boy, he's a dragon. And the bracelet is around his leg and it is terribly painful. And he's, he's just realized that he's been transformed by his greed and his lust and his pride and all these things. And he just grieves that and grieves that and there's this painful bracelet on him. 
But eventually, uh, he, he so desires it to come off, he eventually, Aslan, who's the Christ figure, comes to him and, and, and says, hey, I can help you. I can help you get this off. I can help you shed this. And, and, and he, tries, he tries to um, do it. He goes up into the mountains with Aslan, and he goes into, he says, you need to be washed. Aslan says, you need to be washed. And you need to take off the dragon skin. And he's like, okay. So, so that's what he does and what we often do. He, he takes off the first layer, uh, but he's still a dragon. He does it two or three, four more times. And he's like, I can't, I can't get, he's tearing at the skin. He can't get it. It's just this surface level trying to transform himself. And finally, Aslan says, I can do it for you. And it's just this picture of, of, of sanctification. I'll, I'll read that part in the scene says, the very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. See, when, when God begins to work and, and sanctify us, it's, it's painful. It's, it hurts worse than we could ever bear, but... There is a pleasure of it coming off as well. As well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there was lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker, a more knobby-looking and more knobbly-looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that for much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on, and threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I'd turned into a boy again. After a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me. In new clothes. This is the, 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 the process of sanctification. God working with us, cutting deeply and, and making us not less human, but more human. What we were created to be. We weren't created to be people that just go after our own sins and lusts and all these things. But God tears that away and, and this process of making us new. I, I don't have it on the screen, but let me just show you, if you turn one page over to the book of Philippians, how this is, works together. In chapter 1, verse 6, it says, Paul says this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. So who began a good work in us? God began a good work in us. And then when you look at chapter 2, he says something interesting. He says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, if there was a, a period there, we'd be like, well, what? I mean, I thought God did this, and now i got to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. But there's a comma, which becomes very important, at least in the ESV. Work out your own salvation for fear, with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's this conjunction where we, we join our wills, our spirit, with God's spirit, and God begins to make us more and more into the image of Christ. So the third step 
is found in the next verse, and that is to, uh, the first one is to renew our minds. The second one is to mortify sin. The third one is uh, another Puritan word, vivification, right? Let, let's try that together. Ready? One, two, three. Vivification. Okay, I'll give you a C minus, but um, vivification, that just means not only do we put to death the old, we're designed to, to, to come more and more alive, to, to vivify our souls, to, to delight in and enjoy God on an increasing level. So we, we put to death the, the old. We, we lay aside the weight. I love what um, in Hebrews it says this, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Now, notice something in the very first part of that verse. It says, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely to us. Now, here's, again, when we, when we just try to do the, the bare minimum to get by, then as Christians, we're like, yeah, we should probably not sin. Okay, that, we, we agree with that. But that's not what the text, the text says. It says, yeah, get rid of the sin. But it also says, let us also lay aside every weight that bears us down. So there are things in my life that are morally neutral things. And for any of you to do these things, you could be totally fine. But, but I find that there's things in my life that robs my affection for Jesus. There's not a verse in the Bible that says, hey, don't spend all day, don't, don't spend three hours reading ESPN.com. Like, don't, uh, don't waste your time watching certain television shows. Don't, don't do all that. Morally, fine, neutral thing. But if I start to give my passions, give my life to these things, they weigh me down, and I'm not running with freedom towards Christ. And for each one of us, is different. Like, I couldn't give you my list. If I, if I said, hey, these are the things that weigh me down, therefore you can't do them either, that's legalism. But there are things, there are there are things that between you and God that you know aren't wrong, but they rob you of your affections for Christ. And if we're going to be serious about growing in sanctification, growing in our passion for God, we say, well, these things need to, need to be cut out of my life. And, and so we, we cut those things out. Then we come alive in vivification. Verse 12, put on then, sorry, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. So we take off the old jersey and we're putting on new jersey. We're taking off the jersey that had anger and malice and sexual impurity and we're putting on compassionate hearts. We're putting on uh, kindness, meekness, and patience. I mean, all, that list as well, every single area I need to grow in. And, and I see it in the way I, I treat my daughters and the way I, I talk to my wife and the way I interact with people. Man, I need to grow in these things. I need to put these things on. And so it's coming more and more alive. And then finally, the third step, the second one is vivification. The fourth, uh, I'm sorry, the second one is mortification. Third one is putting on new clothes, vivification. The fourth one is to employ the weapons of grace available to us. So what you can't hear in a message like this is, well, I just got to go out and try harder. Like that, that's unfortunately what, what I know is a danger for you to hear. Please don't hear me say, go try harder and then Jesus will love you more. That, that's not going to happen. 
You are adopted. You're justified. He sees you as holy. And so for your joy and God's glory, we want to grow in our personal holiness. But to do that, we have to employ the weapons of God's grace. What are they? Verse, um, I'll pick it up in verse 13. Bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. Notice what Paul just did there. He appealed to the gospel. He said, look, when you're doing life in community, and by the way, this happens in community, community like we don't go off up to the mountains and, and do a silent retreat for three weeks and hope that we're more like Jesus. It happens when iron, like Proverbs 27, 17 says, when iron sharpens, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. That's a violent process. That's a hot process. That sparks are flying. But if we're in it for each other, we will become sharper we will grow with one another. But he says, now when you, when you do sin against each other, forgive each other. Why? Because God has forgiven us. Remember the gospel. Like, remember the offense that you had before a holy God, and now compare that to what's happened between you and that person. Man, you can forgive that. But you have to remember the gospel, or else you'll just demand your rights, demand your way. And then he says this, and above all these, put on Love, again, it's this picture of putting on our new clothes, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. When our kids were little, and even today, uh, my wife in particular had this saying to our little kids. So four daughters, uh, sinners, um, just like all of us. And so they would bicker, and they would fight, and one would get offended. And sometimes, um, you know, they, they would want this doll or that doll, and the other sister has that doll. You, I mean, parents in here know what I'm talking about, right? Like, don't look at me like I'm crazy. <laughs> and, and sometimes other moms would come to Jennifer and be like, well, yeah, they always just fought over this doll, so I just bought each of them that doll. My wife would be like, well, that's dumb. What do you mean? I didn't want them to fight anymore. She's like, no, this is a heart issue. This is a, a, a teaching moment. And so, no, we're not going to buy them each their own doll. They, they, this is an opportunity for them to learn. And so she would say to them, as one would come and, and complain, and my sister did this to me. Jennifer would say, cover it in love. And they hated that. <laughs> but I demand my rights. It's my turn. I, I, I deserve this. Cover it in love. We don't deserve anything, but we can cover it in love because we've been covered in love by God. And so, so the weapons of grace is, is the gospel, covering it in love. And then he gives us the second weapon. First one's the gospel. The second one is uh, verse 15, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The Word of God is given not for our information, but for our transformation. Like, this should transform us. Uh, in fact, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 says as much. All Scripture is God-breathed, out, out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? That the man or woman of God may be complete. It's a, or, or that word complete means mature. It's a process equipped for every good work. We can't think we're going to grow in sanctification apart from the Word of God. We need the Word of God in, in some ways. Now, this means more than just memorizing the Word, 
of course, because Jesus would often confront people that had the entire Bible memorized and they're like not understanding how to apply. So it has to be more than memorizing and reading the word, but it's a, it's a saying, God, wash me with the word, transform my thinking, transform how I interact with you. And the word of God does this. Matthew 4, 4 says, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so the weapon is of the gospel, the weapon of the word. And then finally, verse six, the second half of verse 16, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The Spirit of God, the Word of God, the people of God. You and I will not be sanctified apart from the people of God. I said it last week. Your relationship with God was meant to be intensely personal, never private. Intensely personal, never private. So we need the people of God with one another training together. Molly mentioned that. She, she has women come to her garage. It's great. You drive to work in the morning and they're all working out, flipping tires. Well, that's the summer. But, uh, but they're, why are they doing that? Why do they do it? Why, I mean, all of us could just work out on our own, right? Because there's just something that happens when you're in it together. There's some level of accountability. There's some um, cheering one another on. There's, there's what we talked about last week, spurring one another on to love and good deeds. And we get that in our physical lives. We get that in other areas of our lives. But we have to wrap our life around that in our spiritual lives. That's why we do gospel communities, by the way. And in fact, one starting up this week, right? So the My Singers and... Uh, the Dugas, okay, there you guys. So see them. They're, they'll do the first Friday, first and third Friday of every month. And then we have another one, the, the first and third Wednesday, although we're not going to start on the first Wednesday. We're, we'll do it the third. Uh, but nonetheless, I, we're going to be committed to this because we need each other because we want to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Well, how do we do this? Well, first of all, you've got you to gotta make a plan. You got to make a plan. I don't have a, anything on here. So none of us are going to leave here this morning and be like, okay, well, sanctification, check. Like the, the whole idea of sanctification means that we are in process, right? Like the, the doctrine of sanctification should make you and I as followers of Christ the most humble people on the planet. Like there should be no reputation among Christians as being arrogant because sanctification tells us we are in process. We need God. We need to grow. We, we don't have it all figured out. We still sin against each other. We still think things that we shouldn't think. We are, we are hypocrites and yet God still loves us. That should be our heart position as followers of Christ. And so None of us are going to leave here and say, sanctification, check. But what we can do is say, with the Spirit of God, we can take one step toward Jesus rather than away from Jesus this week. One step towards Jesus. So for you, I want you to just think right now. We're, we'll, we'll do this and we'll pray and we'll do communion. But I want you to just think about this real quick. What's one thing, one area, maybe that the Spirit of God is saying, hey, I want you to take a step toward me this week. Maybe it's a spiritual discipline. You'd like your, your prayer life to be a little bit more alive. You'd like your, your time in the Word to be a little bit deeper. You'd like to do some fasting. Uh, maybe it's a, a, you know, God's calling you to serve someone or something in your family or uh, in the city. Uh, what about, maybe it's something with vivica, vivification. You just want to be more on fire with Christ. 
What stirs your affections? You, you probably already know that you do, when you do some things, you, you feel more alive in Christ. And when you do other things, you feel more dead. So just pick one thing right now. So everyone got one thing in their mind? Now here's the second part of that. It's just one step we're going to take towards Jesus this week. And, and you've all got that right now. The second part is tell somebody. You got to tell somebody. So I meet each week uh, for coffee with, with Brad. And uh, one of the things that we, we do as we, we plan and pray for the church and stuff like that, we also know that we need to be walking with, with Jesus. And so we say, how, how are you doing? Loving your wife. Okay. I'm going to ask you that each week. And, and now we added this week because I said, hey, uh, you know, when I look at my life, I just say things and, and, and do things uh, to my children that just aren't right. Like, I have this impatience. I get angry when I shouldn't be getting angry. So Brad, would you please just ask me about that next week? And so as I go through my week, I'm like, hey, Brad's going to ask me. I'm going to fail, but hopefully I fail less this week than I did the week before. And so what's the one step you're going to take this week? And who are you going to invite in? Maybe it's a spouse Maybe it's a friend. Maybe you're going to start in, in one of our gospel communities and just say, hey, I'd like to grow in this area. Would you just ask me about that next week? I used to gather with these guys uh, in Okinawa, two of them, uh, and, and we, you know, we memorized like the book of Colossians. I'd never do that on my own. But each week we would come together and be like, you got it? Yeah. Sometimes we didn't have it. We said, okay, we'd meet in Starbucks in, in Okinawa, and this guy said, well, if I don't have it next week, I'm going to stand up. Whoever doesn't have it next week but among the three of us, you got to stand up on your chair and yell out uh, whatever it is that blocked your way. I love ESPN more than I love Jesus, <laughs> which would, wouldn't be that bad because they're all Japanese. They wouldn't understand that. But, but it was like, okay, I don't want to say that next week, so I'm going to do this because we need each other to grow in our Christ-likeness for our joy and for God's glory. May God make Redemption Parker a humble people who zealously pursue Christ for the glory of God, for our joy. Lord Jesus, give me a deeper repentance, a horror of sin, a dread of its approach. Help me chastely to flee it and jealously to resolve that my heart shall be thine alone. Give me a deeper trust that I may lose myself to find myself in thee, the ground of my rest, the spring of my being. Give me a deeper knowledge of thyself as Savior, Master, Lord, and King. Give me deeper power in private prayer more sweetness in thy word, more steadfast grip on its truth. Give me deeper holiness in speech, thought, action, and let me not seek moral virtue apart from thee. Plow deep in me, great Lord, heavenly husbandman, that my being may be a tilled field the roots of grace spreading far and wide until thou alone art seen in me. Thy beauty golden like summer harvest, thy fruitfulness as autumn plenty. I have no master but thee. 
no law but thy will, no delight but thyself, no wealth but that thou givest, no good but that thou blessest, no peace but that thou bestowest. I am nothing but that thou makest me. I have nothing but that I receive from thee. I can be nothing but that grace adorns me. Quarry me deep, dear Lord, and then fill me to overflowing with living water.